I'm Bill Balknight, one of the preachers here at Mount Horeb, and I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Our scripture lesson for the morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. I'll begin reading with the 18th verse. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. A man named Bob decided that this would be the year when he would not send any Christmas cards. His reasoning was like this. He said, look, we live in a digital age. People communicate by email and Instagram, Facebook. So Christmas cards are old-fashioned, out of date. Besides, he thought, they cost a lot. Then you got to buy the stamps, and it takes time. And furthermore, he thought, you know, I got a feeling that people don't read them anyway. They just look at who sent them and then discard them. So, for all those reasons, Bob decided no Christmas cards this year. And for the first week in December, he felt really good about his decision. However, with every passing day, he received more Christmas cards from friends and acquaintances all across the country. And with every card that came in, his guilt level rose. Finally, four days before Christmas, he could stand it no longer. He raced down to the drugstore. There was one box of cards, 50 cards left. He grabbed it, raced home, frantically addressed and signed 49 of those cards, had one left over, flipped it on the table beside his lazy boy chair. Then he quickly put stamps on all of them, raced down to the post office and mailed them that very evening, and he felt so much better. The next day, he sat down in his lazy boy chair, 
and saw that extra card over there and suddenly it occurred to him, you know, I addressed and signed all those cards so fast yesterday. I never read the message inside the card. I better check. The message inside the card said, this cheery card has come to say, a gift from us is on the way. <laughs> now, though Bob did not know it, the message of his card conveyed the very essence of what Advent is about this season prior to Christmas. A gift is on the way. That's what it means. During these days of December, we are preparing to receive the greatest gift in all of human history. God Almighty visited planet Earth in the form of a baby born to a lower class Jewish couple in an obscure region of the Middle East. Today we consider what that awesome gift means, and how we can share that gift. Luke's gospel tells us that the first person who learned that a gift is on the way was a humble teenager, a girl named Mary, who lived in the tiny village of Nazareth. The high-ranking angel Gabriel came to her and said, out of all the women in the world, you have been selected to be the mother of the Son of God. And her faithful response was, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. The second person to receive word about the coming gift was a man named Joseph, a carpenter in that same village of Nazareth, engaged to be married to Mary. So join me by way of imagination now, just about Six months before the birth of Jesus, Joseph is deeply troubled because his fiancée has told him that she is pregnant and he knows it's not his doing. She says it's the Lord's doing. But Joseph is one of these hard-headed, practical, down-to-earth sorts, a carpenter. He just does not believe her. And since she refuses to budge from her story... He has decided to divorce her quietly. Now, in that culture, an engagement was a legal relationship. It lasted one year, and the only way to break it was with a divorce. Well, Joseph had decided that he would get this divorce quietly because he wanted to minimize Mary's public disgrace. And his heart is breaking because he loves Mary. Now, immersed in these sad thoughts, Joseph falls into a troubled sleep, and he has a dream. An angel appears and informs him that Mary is telling the truth. And the angel orders him to cut the engagement short. Go ahead and marry Mary. I'll let the gossips talk. And the angel also reveals something very important, the name and the title of this baby to be born. You shall name him Jesus, said the angel, and his title will be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The name and the title really reveal the breathtaking essence of Christmas. Let's take the name first. Verse 21, we read, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the 
Hebrew Old Testament name, Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus' very name reveals the central mission of his life to save us from sin and to reconcile us with a holy God. The angel listed only one task at the top of his job description, to save us from sin. Jesus was the only baby in history born for the purpose of dying, dying for us. Across his manger fell the shadow of the cross. Why was his death necessary? Because all of us have a spiritual virus that is eternally lethal. It's called sin. The symptoms of this spiritual virus are splashed over every daily newspaper. Divorce, drug and alcohol addiction, child abuse and neglect, the abuse of women, which has been so much in the news recently, lying, stealing, racism, money worship. Unless the sin virus is cured, it will increasingly wreck our lives in this world and separate us from a holy God forever. The good news is there is a cure. God sent it through a baby, his son, born into a Bethlehem manger. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How do we receive the cure? It's really simple by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Now, the devil is not happy because the cure is so free and so available. And so, in order to mislead us, Satan suggests that we really don't need to be forgiven and saved. The devil reminds us of all the good things we've done. The devil says to us, hey, you really are fine. You never pass by one of those Salvation Army kettles without putting something in it. You, you haven't broken any law, well, except speeding, but other than that, you haven't broken any laws. You really are a good person. And you know, Satan says, God's going to finally grade on the curve. So you're going to be able to slide on in because you know millions of those unchurched folks out there are not nearly as good as you. So says the devil, the greatest salesman on earth. What's the devil up to? The devil knows that if we do not see ourselves as sinners, we will have no need for a savior. My friend, the late great evangelist Wallace Chapel, used to tell a story about a college student named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a freshman. She came home for Christmas holidays. And off at school, she had fallen under the influence of a liberal professor of religion. And so back at home for the holidays, she got a chance to speak with her home pastor. And she said to him, Pastor, I no longer like to think of a God who saves me. I rather prefer to think of a God who identifies with me. Her wise pastor said, Elizabeth, I want to ask you a question. I want you to suppose that you're staying in a hotel room in Nashville, up on the fourth floor of that hotel. And let's suppose that a fire breaks out in the hotel, and because of the flames and the smoke, there's no way you can get out of your room. 
But let's suppose that some firefighters, at great risk to themselves, climb an extended ladder to the window of your room. Now, my question is, do you want those firefighters to save you or to identify with you? Thanks be to God that the first task of the Bethlehem baby is to save us from our sins. In addition to the name for this holy child, the angel gave the title, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah had predicted that God would send a very special baby born to a virgin who would convey that God is with us in the fullest sense. Now, for over a thousand years before Christ, God had sent prophets and kings to reveal God's character to humanity. But they didn't always do a very good job. And people did, all, did not always perceive God correctly. Many people believed that God was distant, powerful, judgmental, almost fearful. And the only way God could really convey his character and love was to become one of us. And that's what he did in Jesus. Let me illustrate. I used to patronize a, a certain Chinese restaurant in another city. And that restaurant had a marvelous, really first-class aquarium. It covered half of one side of a wall. And it was filled with incredibly beautiful tropical fish with colors so extraordinary that only God's personal coloring set could have decorated them. Now, you may know this, but it really takes a lot of effort and expense to run a first-class aquarium. The owner must monitor the oxygen, nitrate, and ammonia levels. The water must be filtered. Vitamins, antibiotics, sulfur drugs have to be pumped in. The fish have to be fed regularly. Now, you would think with all of that care and attention by the owner, the fish would love the owner. No, no. Whenever the owner comes around, the fish dart away in fear because for them, the owner is too big to comprehend, too frightening to love. The only way to change that would be if the owner could become a fish to convey his real character to the other fish. That's what God had to do. He became a person in order to show us his character and his love. The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. This means that since Jesus really experienced our humanness, he understands us thoroughly. The great teacher and writer Max Lucado tells about his neighbor who was trying to teach his six-year-old son to shoot a basketball. They were out in the backyard on their court, and the father kept going through all the basics, told him about the footwork, the flexing of the knees, the, the, the motion of the shot, the follow-through, all of that. And the father kept making these shots, and he kept saying, this is really easy. Just do it like that. Just do it like that. Well, the little fella, six years old, he, he couldn't get the basketball up to that 10-foot goal. 
He kept trying and kept failing. And he finally became exasperated. And so after his father one more time took a shot and talked about how easy it was, the little fellow said, Daddy, it may be easy for you up there, but you don't understand how hard it is for me down here. We can never say that to God because he has been down here. He has walked where we walk. He has suffered what we suffer. He has been tempted as we have been tempted. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. This means that when our hearts are broken because somebody we really trusted let us down, our Lord has been there. In his moment of greatest need, all of his friends ran out on him. When death snatches from us someone more precious than our own life, our Lord has been there. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. When we are tempted so severely that we almost tremble, our Lord has been there. For 40 days in the wilderness, he was badgered and tempted by Satan. And when life makes no sense and we can't seem to find God anywhere, our Lord has been there. In agony on a cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can never say truthfully, God doesn't understand. Jesus was God in human form. He paid history's highest rent for the dubious privilege of living. He was and is and always will be Emmanuel, God with us. But just as soon as we have acknowledged the humanness of Jesus, we know we've told only half the story. This Jesus was not only fully human, he was and is God. I love the words of the modern Christmas carol by Mark Lowry and Buddy Green entitled, Mary Did You Know? The singer asked Mary in that song, Mary, did you know that when you kissed your baby boy, you kiss the face of God. Now, it's wonderful if you and I have received this glorious news about the greatest gift in human history, but that is not enough. If our Christmas celebration is nothing more than exchanging gifts with family and friends, that will not glorify the Savior. Jesus said, if you love only those who love you, you deserve no reward. We must do more to relay the love of Jesus Emmanuel. If I were to ask you parents, do you love one of your children more than the others? You would say no, no. But if I were to rephrase the question, ask it a little bit differently, I believe I would get a different reaction. What if I ask you, do you focus more of your attention and concern on one child than the others? I believe you would say yes, because you focus more of your attention and concern on the child who is farthest from home or in the greatest difficulty, don't you? Yeah. Well, God is like the perfect parent. 
while he loves all of us, God tilts. Did you know he tilts? Yes. He tilts toward the least, the lost, the lonely, and the hurting. God tilts toward that mother and her three children who are staying tonight at a downtown homeless shelter because the father has deserted the family and the mother can't find a job that allows her time to care for the children. God tilts toward the young man involved in a homosexual lifestyle. He's not happy in that lifestyle, but he doesn't know where to turn for help. And he's not sure that most church people even care about him as they certainly should. God tilts toward the woman who has just received a cancer diagnosis and after the first of the year faces chemo treatments with possible loss of hair and nausea and an uncertain prognosis. God tilts toward the tiny unborn baby who is unwanted and considered expendable. Now, if we are going to tilt as God tilts, that will influence some of the Christmas gifts we give this year. And in order to spark your imagination, let me mention 10 gifts that could express the love of Jesus Emmanuel. They're listed in your bulletin, and you're going to see them on the screen. Number one, invite someone who lives alone to share a meal in your home. Number two, forgive someone so that a grudge is banished. Three, Write a thank you note to a former teacher or coach or pastor. Four, pray for the political leader whom you dislike most. Five, visit someone in a nursing home. Six, spend a couple of hours ringing the bell for the Salvation Army. Seven, pick out a person in your workplace or neighborhood whom you dislike. Do something kind for him or her anonymously. Eight, contact a shut-in and offer to transport him or her to a Christmas Eve service. Nine, if you know someone who is caring for an Alzheimer patient, offer to sit with the patient for an afternoon so the caregiver can have a break. And ten, Write a note to someone on military duty overseas. The gifts that are most reflective of Jesus Emmanuel are given to the least, the lost, the lonely, and the hurting. When I was eight or nine years old, my father was pastor of a church in a town in upstate South Carolina. On the edge of the town lived the Hewitt family. The Hewitt family consisted of a mother and three boys, ages about six, eight, and ten. The father had deserted the family years before. The mother had several low-paying jobs trying to support the family. And one of those jobs required that she work on Sundays. So my father, whom we called Papa, Papa insisted that he and I go pick up the Hewitt boys every Sunday morning and take them to Sunday school and church. And that was okay by me, that was fine. What bothered me and aggravated me was what Papa insisted on doing every Christmas day. Now, early on Christmas morning, we would have our family Christmas time around the tree. But then about noon, 
Papa would insist that we go get the Hewitt family and bring them to our house. Now, you got to understand the Hewitt boys were undisciplined, unruly, and destructive. Now, there was a gift under the tree for each of the Hewitt boys. But after they had unwrapped their gift and played with it a while, they noticed my gifts and began to play with my toys. And before they left, they had broken at least one or two. I wondered, what in the world does Papa see in the Hewitt boys? That is, until I got older. Then it dawned on me that Papa understood the essence of Christmas. Papa knew that if we are going to receive the greatest gift in history, Jesus Emmanuel, we must be willing to relay the gift to the least, the lost, the lonely, and the hurting. And Papa figured that included the Hewitt boys. How can we best celebrate the birthday of Jesus Emmanuel? By remembering his words, inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.